Back in the day when Sue and I bought our first house, we started filling it with uh, poor man antiques that we picked up from the local flea market. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Kane County flea market. They say that the first weekend of every month, somewhere like 25 to 30,000 people show up. And I'll never forget the first piece of furniture Sue and I bought there. It was a, a dresser for our bedroom. And I felt proud of myself because I had bargained with the guy and I brought the price down. It was about half of what he originally asked for. And as I'm standing there writing out the check, I said to him, well, I'll go get my car and we'll pick it up. And he said, if you want to continue shopping, feel free. I'll keep the dresser right here. You could come back at the end of the day and pick it up. I said, fine. I gave him the check. And then he did something kind of strange. He pulled the top drawer of the dresser out and he handed it to me. And I'm thinking like, what, what's with this? And he could see that I was a flea market rookie, so he, he explained, he said, this, this drawer is the guarantee that the dresser will still be here when you come back to pick it up. He said, you know, otherwise I could be tempted to sell it to somebody else who comes along and offers me a better price. I would just give you your check back, but I can't do that. You've got the drawer. So because you've got the drawer, you've got the rest of the dresser. Well, that's an analogy of how you and I if we're Christ followers, experience the kingdom of God in our lives. In, in this life, we get a little taste of that kingdom. We get just a drawer's worth. But that little taste is a preview of coming attractions. It's a guarantee that in the future, we're going to get the full kingdom. We're going to get the entire dresser. So welcome to week two of a five-part series that we're calling Your Kingdom come, your kingdom come. We launched the series last weekend on Easter. We, we learned that Jesus Christ, after having risen from the dead, was exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, and he reigns as king over all. We also learned that when we surrender our lives to Christ, to Christ as king, we become citizens in his kingdom. So today we're going to learn uh, about that kingdom experience, how it unfolds in three stages. So if you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I would encourage you to take the outline out now, fill it in as we go. This is what God has in store for you if you're a follower of King Jesus. And I want you to turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, and keep your, your page flipping finger licked, okay? Because we're, we're not going to park in just one passage today. We're going to flip around to several different texts. Stage number one of the unfolding of the kingdom of Christ, Jesus gives his followers a taste, a taste of his reign. Okay, the kingdom of God was a, was a major theme in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he told his followers in Luke 4, verse 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. That was his message. Three years later, after he is crucified, risen from the dead, before he ascends to heaven, he's got a 40-day block of time with his disciples. What is he going to teach them during those 40 days? Acts 1, verse 3 answers the question. It says, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. That was his lesson, the kingdom of God. And so early Christ followers began to proclaim this, this theme. They spread the good news of God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul traveled all over the then known world preaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He comes to the end of his life. He's under house arrest in the city of Rome. 
They graciously grant him the privilege of having guests, people come and go. What is it that Paul talks about to to those who come to visit him? Acts 28, verse 23, he says, Paul witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining the kingdom of God. This continues to be the message which King Jesus wants his followers to spread to others. In fact, Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 14, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Did you catch that? Jesus says, you want to know when I'm going to return? It's when you get the job done. What's the job? When you tell others worldwide about the kingdom of God. What's the starting point of our message? We learned this last week from the Easter sermon, the starting point is Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and we enter his kingdom by surrendering to Jesus' reign in our lives. Pastor Jameson's going to talk more about that next week in this kingdom series, how you get in the kingdom and the dangers, the dangers of being excluded from the kingdom. So the kingdom of God initially is more about a reign than a realm. Let me repeat that. It's important that you get it. The kingdom of God initially is more about a reign than a realm. Now, when when you hear the word kingdom, you probably think in terms of a realm. You think in terms of territory, land mass, if you would. If I said to you, the United Kingdom, what immediately comes to your mind? It's some location on a map, right, that consists of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and a bunch of other islands. The, The kingdom is a realm. But that's not the way it is initially with the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, there is no realm at present for those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus as king. In fact, we we share the same space as people who don't claim Jesus as king. That's the major lesson in the opening passage that we're about to take a look at, Matthew chapter 13. Now, over 80 times in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, We read of him talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He tells these little short stories sometimes to illustrate this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is one of those stories, one of those parables. So let me read it to you beginning at verse 24. It's called in my Bible the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, in Matthew it's the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. You know why? Because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and it was disrespectful to use the name of God. And so they would talk about the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, a way to avoid God's name. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. That's going to be the operative phrase of the story. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, later on in this 13th chapter of of Matthew, Jesus explains the meaning of this parable to his followers. Let let me briefly summarize it for you. The, The guy who sowed the seed, the good seed, 
in Jesus' story is Jesus himself. The field in which the seed is sown is the world. The seed that grows up and becomes wheat, that's a reference to Jesus' followers. By the way, later in his explanation, Jesus calls these followers people of the kingdom. People of the kingdom. In other words, people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus as king. However, God's arch enemy, Satan, we learn from the story, is also sowing seed in the world. And so people who reject Jesus as king, they grow up as weeds. But they grow up, listen, they grow up right alongside of Jesus' followers. That's how it's going to be in this world, Jesus says, until the end of time. Now, at the end of time, there's going to be, there's going to be a harvest, God's judgment. Jesus is going to send his harvesters, angels, into the world. They'll pick up the weeds, the story says, and burn them. And they'll gather the wheat, Jesus' followers, into his barn. The barn symbolic of the realm of the kingdom of God. For the first time at that point, the kingdom will have a realm of its own. Now, I'm not citing this parable today to talk about the eternal destiny of Christ followers versus non-Christ followers. I just want to make the point that in this life, these two groups, Christ followers, non-Christ followers, wheat and weeds, people who claim Jesus as king, people who reject Jesus as king, they grow up right alongside of each other. Kingdom people do not yet have a place of their own. That doesn't come until the harvest time when King Jesus gathers his followers into his barn. The kingdom of God currently is about a reign the reign of King Jesus in our lives. It's not about a realm. If, if you've surrendered your life to the reign of King Jesus, you're, you're already a citizen in his kingdom. But that kingdom doesn't yet have a realm of, of its own. You following this? You say, why, why are you making such a big deal out of this point? Well, because there is a tension in the life of every true Christ follower. It's a tension that theologians refer to as the already, not yet, nature of the kingdom of God. Okay, the already, not yet, nature of the kingdom of God. Already means that Christ followers are already experiencing many of the blessings of living in God's kingdom. I mean, the reign of Christ in our lives is producing some amazing results. In some cases, marriages are restored. Or bodies are healed, sinful habits are broken, joy is experienced, prayer is answered. These are the already blessings of living in God's kingdom. However, the kingdom has not yet fully arrived. One day it will come. You know, one day that kingdom will be both a reign and a realm. And I'll be talking more about the round part in just a few moments in this sermon. But for now, I just want you to understand that many of the kingdom's blessings are not yet. Already not yet. Christ followers are getting a taste of Jesus' reign, but the full feast of Jesus' reign is still to come. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of how this might create some tension in your life. Okay, let's say that you get seriously ill. You know, you get cancer or heart disease. Let's say you're in an automobile accident and you're, you're roughed up, maybe even paralyzed. Can God heal you? You know, we believe he can. In fact, in the New Testament, 
The epistle of James says, James 5, verses 14 and 15, that if, if you're sick in, in some way, you should call the elders, the leaders of the church, to pray for you. And James says, rather matter-of-factly, and you'll be healed. And we do that around Christ Community Church. We have prayer team members who will pray for you. We have elders who will pray for you. We see people healed. But there's a tension here. There's an already not yet. Is everybody healed? No, everybody we heal, we pray for is not healed. Why not? Because already Jesus as king is intervening in the lives of his followers, but we're not yet living in the kingdom where all sickness is banished forever. You following this? So in some cases, like even the Apostle Paul, Paul writes in his second epistle of Corinthians in the New Testament, he said, I had this thorn in the flesh, this physical infirmity. I prayed three times for God to remove it. And he said, no, didn't do it. Although God gave him the strength and the grace to persevere. See, it doesn't always happen. So if you're thinking, well, wait a second, so-and-so got sick and they prayed for her and she got healed and I'm sick and they prayed for me and I didn't get better. It's because in this life we got a taste of the kingdom, but not the full feast. Let me give you another example. Your struggle with sin. Doesn't it honk you off sometime that you keep struggling, you keep fighting the same battle over and over and over again? Aren't there times when you say to, to King Jesus, I just wish you'd take away this urge to do sinful, stupid, hurtful, self-destructive things. Like, why don't you take it away, right? It's because of the already not yet tension that we're experiencing this. See, already you are seeing some habits broken in your life, I hope. And we spent 11 weeks in a series going through the epistle of 1 John where we learned genuine Christ followers cannot continue in sin. It's not that it's impossible for us to sin. It's just, you know, we're no longer content to stay stuck there. When you find yourself caught up in some sin, you immediately begin praying. God, break this pattern. And you've seen that happen in your life, I hope. But not completely. You know, there's still a sense that you get these urges to lust or to materialism or deceitfulness or, uh, you know, a critical judgmental spirit or whatever your sin of choice is. Not too long ago, I, I read this wonderful book by a guy named Wesley Hill. Wes is 30-something years old, extremely bright. He's a New Testament scholar, has a Ph.D. from Cambridge University. And he struggles, according to his book, he struggles with same-sex attraction. In fact, Wes would tell you that by orientation, he's, he's gay. He feels drawn in that direction, but not by behavior. Because he knows God's word enough to understand that it prohibits that behavior, and so he's done something very courageous. He's determined that he's going to be a single man walking in sexual purity, a difficult thing to do. And he calls his book, Washed and Waiting. I love the title. Because as, as he explains, we're, we're washed, in this life we're washed from our sins. If we put our hope in Jesus, sins can be forgiven. But there's still that urge. We're being drawn, tempted by sin. One day... We're waiting for the day. We're waiting one day the urge will be gone. Sin will be banished. But that's the ultimate kingdom of God. See how this works? Jesus gives his followers a taste of his reign. We're already beginning to savor some of the blessings of being citizens in God's kingdom. However, we're not yet experiencing all that King Jesus has in store for us. Now, much more is coming. 
And friends, that should give us hope. You know, that, that should give us hope when life is discouraging. If you've got kids or, or grandkids, you're probably familiar with the children's story, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. <clears throat> I used to read this to my, my kids. Now I'm reading it to my granddaughter who's local. The first page of the book reads, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And as you, you read the book, this poor kid's day, it goes from bad to worse. You know, the, his brothers, he's got two brothers, and they look in their cereal box, and they find a toy. He looks in his cereal box, and you, you know what he gets? Cereal, that's it. They go to the dentist. His brothers walk out clean. He's got two cavities. He steps in a, in a mud puddle. Nobody else does, but he does. And every time something bad happens to him, he says, I think I'm going to move to Australia. Remember that part of the book? You know, I'm going to move to Australia. I'm going to Australia. Very last page of the book reads, when I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue, and the cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. <laughs> if, you know, if you're a Christ follower, there are going to be some terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. You, you may have experienced one or two of those this week. You know, there may be a day when you lose a job or you're betrayed by a spouse or you, you got, get a bad diagnosis from a doctor or prom comes and goes and you, you didn't have a date. I mean, that won't change just because Jesus is your king. Oh, there'll be lots of blessings along the way associated with being a citizen in, in his kingdom. And I'd encourage you to recognize those and to thank God, be a grateful person. But right now, you're only experiencing a taste of his reign. So keep looking forward to the day when you'll get the full feast version of God's kingdom. And it won't be because you moved to Australia. It'll be because, this is the second point in our outline, it'll be because Jesus returns to reign upon earth. Jesus, this is the second stage, Jesus returns to reign upon earth. In the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, I want you to turn there with me, okay? That's easy to find. Just go to the right side of your Bible, all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, the Apostle John is given a preview of how human history will conclude and eternity will begin. Drop down to verse 15, an angel blasts a, a long uh, trumpet sound, the usual accompaniment, by the way, whenever a king takes a throne, the, the trumpet sounds. In this case, the king taking his throne is King Jesus. And that trumpet blast is accompanied by a myriad of voices crying out in heaven. This is Revelation 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If that exclamation sounds familiar, it's probably because you heard it where? Yeah, that's right. These, these are the, the lyrics of George Frederick Handel's famous song, The Hallelujah Chorus. 
These words describe the point in time when Jesus will return to earth. And now note, and he'll make the kingdom of this world his kingdom. This will be the ultimate hostile takeover, but it'll be a good one. That the kingdom of God will finally have a realm of its own. Planet Earth. Theologians refer to this kingdom on earth, this kingdom of God on earth as the, the millennium. It's described in Revelation 20, first half dozen verses, five times as a 1,000-year reign. That's how it gets the name millennium. Millennium's a Latin word, milla, thousand, annum, year, 1,000-year reign. Now, if you've never heard of the Bible's millennium before, you may be wondering to yourself, you know, 1,000 years, like that's it? I mean, the kingdom of God, you're saying, finally gets its own, own realm, and it only lasts a 1,000 years? Well, no, the kingdom of God lasts forever and ever. But that's only after God creates a new heaven and a new earth. That's stage three. Before we get to stage three, however, Jesus reigns on this present earth for a thousand years. That's stage two. You say, well, wait a second. Why is God, why is God going to do it? Why create a new heaven and earth? Why have a millennial kingdom in between now and then? Why not just get to the new heaven and new earth? Isn't the millennial kingdom kind of like a mediocre warm-up band that you're trying to get off the stage so the good band, you know? You ever been to a concert like that? And whenever Sue and I go out to the West Coast to see our, our daughter Emily and son-in-law Adam, we always go out for music. That's one of the fun things we like doing. And Adam usually checks out what good bands are playing in Portland. And, you know, we're, we end up in some dive of a, of a place where a bunch of bodies are, are packed in. So this last time, uh, we had to take care of the baby now. So we got a sitter for the baby. And uh, Emily and Adam and Sue and I, we, we went out and... The concert started at 9 o'clock at night. Okay, now we had just flown in from Chicago, so my body clock says it's 11 o'clock at night. And we go in, and I scan the audience. I realize I'm old enough to be everybody's mom and dad in the place. About 150 people packed in. It's standing room only. There are no seats. At 9 o'clock, a warm-up band starts. They play for an hour. They get done, they leave the stage, a second warm-up band gets up. I'm not making this up. Second warm-up band plays for an hour. The band I came to hear starts playing at 11.15, body clock, 1.15 a.m. I'm saying, I am too old for this. <laughs> is this what the millennium is like? Like, if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, why don't we just get there? What's the point of the millennium? Let me give you three reasons for a millennium. Okay, first reason is this. The millennium will demonstrate what the present world could have been like if Adam and Eve and the, the rest of us had not rejected God's rule. See, our, our sin is the reason that the present world is such a mess. But when King Jesus asserts his reign during the millennial kingdom, this world will be an amazing place to live. Several of the Old Testament prophets describe various characteristics of this 1,000-year period. And by the way, theologians disagree as to whether 1,000 years is to be interpreted literally or symbolically. Does it mean, you know, 1,365 days, uh, you know, each years? Or is it a symbolic term just to mean it's going to last a long, long time? 
Whatever the case, Isaiah probably has the most to say about this era. So I'm going to ask you, lick your finger one more time and flip to the middle of your Bible, okay, the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 2. You'll find Isaiah not too long after the Psalms. It's a big book, so you'll find it easily. And we're going to look at several different passages. Here are some descriptions of this 1,000-year millennial kingdom. i got to tell you, as I reflect on scriptures like these, you know, I say, bring it on, God. This sounds really, really good. This is a world I'd love to live in. So chapter 2, verse 4. He, meaning King Jesus, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Sounds good to me. International peace. No more war. Not when King Jesus reigns. Now flip over a few chapters. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. With righteousness he, meaning King Jesus, will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. So there's going to be perfect justice in this world, this millennial kingdom. The elimination of evil. What will they show on the news, right? There won't be anything. You probably have to stop doing newscasts. Let, let me continue in, in Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf, you've heard this one before, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will pull its hand into the viper's nest. Yikes. But they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Harmony. Complete harmony in nature. So those of you who've always hated camping because of the bugs and the wild animals... You'll probably go buy a tent and take a vacation in Colorado, right? Flip over a few passages. Chapter 35 of Isaiah. 35. First couple of verses. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The desert, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will greatly uh, rejoice greatly and shout for joy. You got the desert busting out with beautiful flowers. Wow. One last passage. Last chapter, second last chapter, chapter 65, verse 20. Isaiah 65, 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. You get this? No miscarriage. Nobody dying in their prime. Everybody living to a ripe old age. Now please note that Isaiah, he's not describing the ultimate new heaven and new earth here because in the ultimate new heaven and new earth, there'll be no death, period. Okay, death will be forever banished. But he's describing the millennial kingdom. It's better than, than this earth, though not yet the new, new heaven and new earth. The millennial kingdom in which King Jesus reigns and it creates conditions for long and happy lives. This is what our present world could have been like if we hadn't messed it up with sin. Second reason for a millennial kingdom, 
The millennial kingdom will demonstrate that Satan is beyond reformation. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus puts Satan into this retaining prison called the abyss. Okay, but at the the end of the thousand-year period, Satan is released, and you, you know what he immediately does? He raises an army, and he revolts against King Jesus. First thing he does, just demonstrates the fact that a, a thousand years in jail has not reformed his character. He's one bad dude. Third reason for millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom will demonstrate the natural tendency of the human heart toward rebellion against God. That's who we are by nature. Rebels at heart. You know, people are often you know, asked the question, well, do you think people are basically good or are they basically bad? Modern psychology says, yeah, basically good. It's bad environments that ruin people. Good people put in bad dysfunctional homes or bad societies, and it, and it corrupts them. The Bible begs to disagree. It says, no, we got a sinful nature. At birth, we get it. Our heart bent is against God. If you want proof of it, after living for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, this pristine, idyllic kingdom, Satan is released, raises up an army, and the people who've been living in this kingdom join his army, revolt against God. See, by nature, we're rebels in heart. That's why Jesus had to save us, friends. Not just from sin's penalty by dying on the cross to pay for our sins, but he died, rose from the dead to save us from sin's power, its ability to control us. One final note about Jesus' return to reign upon earth. The Bible says that it will come, you know, as a surprise. Not a good surprise to most people. This is somewhat ironic that it would be surprising because Jesus gives us a number of signs to look for. You know, events, he says, that will precede his coming to set up the millennial kingdom. He says there'll be an increase in wars and natural disasters and moral wickedness and the persecution of Christ followers. Look for these things. But most, most people will write all this off as standard fare, and they will go on behaving just the way they always have, ignoring King Jesus in their daily lives. And so Jesus returned to reign Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, will come like a thief in the night. Big surprise. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, Paul says it will happen in a flash. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. So my question for you today is, are you getting ready for that moment? What are you doing today that will prepare you to stand before King Jesus when he returns to set up his thousand-year rule? How are you doing business? How are you raising your kids? How are you expending your time and your money and your resources? Are you doing it in a way that when Jesus shows up and it'll feel sudden, you'll be ready to meet him? Stage three, Jesus reigns forever over a new heaven and new earth. Jesus reigns forever over a new heaven and new earth. Now, what is so great about heaven? You know, according to the angel Dudley, not much. If you've seen the Christmas movie, The Preacher's Wife, ever seen that one? Denzel Washington plays the role of Dudley and Whitney Houston is the preacher's wife and Dudley is sent to earth to save this inner city pastor's marriage and his church and And Dudley's all excited about returning to earth because he was once a human. See, Hollywood scriptwriters don't have great theology. Yeah. 
Just so you know, humans never become angels. That's not, not the way it works. But he's excited about getting returned to planet Earth. He's looking forward to eating some pizza because there's evidently no Lou Mal- Malnati's, no Gino East up in heaven. In fact, there's a lot of really cool stuff on Earth that heaven is missing out on, which is what Dudley tells the preacher. He says, do you know that angels are standing in line up in heaven hoping to get sent back to Earth? Bet you didn't know that, did you? What's so great about heaven? Truth be known, many of us have a concept of heaven that does very little to excite us. We can't honestly say that we're looking forward to spending eternity there. What's your picture of heaven? The Apostle John was given a first-hand preview of heaven. And he describes it in the New Testament book of Revelation. So I want you to turn back again to Revelation, the last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Just a side note here, by the way. I would rather read what God's holy, inspired word says about heaven than go to a a movie and watch what a little boy who's had a near-death experience says about heaven. It's just a thought, if there should ever be a movie that would come out like that, you know? I would just as soon spend my money on the new Captain America myself, but just a thought, all right? So if, you, if you're going to go see it, my recommend would be that you take somebody with you who doesn't know what the real heaven's going to be like, and then afterward you sit down over coffee and say, oh, you got to see what the Bible says about it. Now, that would be a good use of your theater dollars. I'm done with my soapbox. Okay. Some of you are going to slink out of here because you saw it last night. I don't care. <laughs> really. Chapter 21, let me read you what it's going to be like. I'll just read a few verses. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, the first thing I want you to note about this this new heaven is that it's not just heaven. God's eternal kingdom is both a new heaven and a new earth. Did you notice that in the verses I read? In fact, the capital city of this kingdom, the new Jerusalem, descends from heaven, verse 2, and takes up residency on this new earth. So God is going to dwell. Look again at verse 3. He's going to dwell with people. Don't miss this. We're not going to God's place. God's coming to our place. You know what this means? It means that if you haven't been especially looking forward to the prospect of sitting on a heavenly cloud and playing a golden harp for all eternity, no need to worry. God's creating a new earth for the followers of Jesus. And theologians even speculate that although there will be some amazingly new features on our new earth, there will also be lots of continuity with the earth we presently know. Why do theologians say that? Not only because of some of the things they infer from, from Scripture, but, but they say it's, it's probably going to be like our bodies, and the, the Scripture is very explicit in that regard. 1 Corinthians 15 says that in the new heaven and new earth, if you're a Christ follower, God's going to give you a new body, but he's not going to create it from scratch. Now, he's going to resurrect your dead body, and he's going to jazz it up 
And then he's going to reunite it with your soul. Okay, so there, there will be some spectacular features of your, your new body, but there will also be continuity with who you are presently on this earth. Theologians say, well, it's probably going to be like that with the planet as well, right? So there are going to be some amazing new features, and yet there's going to be continuity with what we currently know. Now, if we had time in this service... I would love to just read Revelation 21 and 22 to you out loud. And we could stop along the way and marvel at various aspects of God's eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. But, you know, I'm just about out of time. So I want, I want to challenge you to read this on your own. Okay, pick up a Bible in the next 48 hours and read it. Read it out loud. You know, if you've got a family, read it around your dinner table so everybody gets to hear it. In fact, I would encourage you as you read it to make a list of all the things that are going to be included according to God's word in this heaven, this new heaven and new earth. And John, John would say, don't make one list, make two lists. Because he gets just as excited in Revelation 21 and 22 about telling us what's not going to be in this new heaven and new earth. What God is going to exclude. So make a list of what will be included and what will be excluded and just savor it. Check it out. Revelation 21 and 22. I'm going to ask the worship teams at our campuses to join me on the platform. We're going to collect our gifts, our offerings in just a moment as we sing a song about Christ's coming, his return to set up his kingdom. But one last thought here. Every summer, Sue and I try to gather our family together for a week of family vacay. We still do it even though our kids are now grown and each of them is married. Our last one got married this last fall. Two out of the three now have babies. This is new for us this year. Okay, so Sue goes online and she's looking for a vacation home someplace that we can afford yeah, which is a, a big deal, and some scenic place. So she, she found a place on the lake up in Michigan. What do you think the first thing she does once she's put the down payment on the home? What do you think she does immediately? Okay. She emails the kids and says, check it out. Go online. Here's the link. Okay. You're not going to believe this place. You know, do a virtual tour. There's a bedroom for every couple. No, no air mattresses this year. All right? There's a big yard in, in the back with a fire pit. We're like two blocks from the beach. Look it over. This is what God's saying to you with respect to Revelation in 21 and 22. Check it out. It's what I got in store for you. Take a look at it. Read it out loud. And some of the stuff that's going to be included, my presence, God said, is going to be there undiluted. Perfect relationships. If you struggle relationally, you wish you had better friends or more friends. Or you know, you're going to experience intimacy in relationships like never before because there's going to be no sin to mess them up. You're, you're going to experience a fully satisfying life symbolized in Revelation 21 and 22 by the, the tree of life, the river of life. There's going to be the best of humanity's art and music and culture. You're going to find that in Revelation 21 and 22. There's going to be the grandeur of the earthly landscape because it's going to be a new earth. So I, we could expect mountains and oceans and canyons and waterfalls. And, and don't forget that John wants us to know what's not going to be part of the new heaven and earth over which Jesus will reign. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no death. There's going to be no pain, 
no tears, no conflict, no goodbyes. Which is why you look at the second to last verse of Revelation, which happens to be the second to last verse in the Bible, and John quotes Jesus as saying, yes, I am coming soon. And I love John's response. John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Is that the cry of your heart today? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. It used to be said of Christ followers that we were so heavenly minded, we were no earthly good. I think the continuum has swung to the other extreme, friends. I think today, Christ followers tend to be so earthly minded, so, you know, me included. We're so caught up in the everyday affairs of life, running our business, raising our kids. It's, it, we fail to think in terms of the new heaven, the new earth, the ultimate reign of King Jesus. And so it doesn't impact the way that we live today. We're not heavenly minded enough. If we were, we'd be of more earthly good. 